0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan, and we're giving Tegan a week off. Today, the value or not of men adding testosterone to an exercise program. The value or not of men adding testosterone to prevent type 2 diabetes. Allegations of the government trying to stop doctors from discussing the benefits of COVID vaccines and the increasingly toxic debate around severe mental illness, memory and trauma. At the weekend, the Australian ran an analysis piece about the hugely painful and controversial story of a woman and her allegations of rape. The authors published some of the woman's own writings, which appeared to show the disordered thinking of someone who was very unwell. The account went to the issue of credibility, as well as having a swipe against the ABC, which has led coverage of these allegations. To be fair, last week's Four Corners, while giving views on the legal issues, didn't offer expert analysis of the woman's mental state. What we know is sketchy, and anecdotally includes a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Now, I'm not going to litigate this on the health report, but feel that we've actually been left hanging in yet another potentially stigmatising debate about people with mental illness issues, particularly if they've been complicated by trauma, and then there's a whole issue of the alleged effects on memory. This is not new, but what does the research and evidence tell us? To provide an explainer, I've invited Liz Scott, who's Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Notre Dame and the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Liz has a special interest in complex psychiatric problems, especially in young people, and this story starts when this person was young. Welcome back to The Health Report, Liz. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. What is bipolar disorder?
0: So bipolar disorder is a mood disorder associated with onset usually in late adolescence between the ages of 16 and 24 commonly, which is characterized by periods of very low mood, what we call a low activation state, low energy, low mood, and then other episodes which can be characterized by a very high energy state with lots of energy and drive. Many often racing thoughts and ideas, not necessarily with euphoric mood, as many people assume. Sometimes it can be associated with a lot of dysphoria, low mood, agitation, and irritability, but really characterized by those changes in activation and energy states.
1: And to what extent does bipolar disorder extend into delusional states or delusional thinking, as in yes. psychosis?
0: Yeah, good question. So there are certainly subgroups of people within the bipolar disorder spectrum because it is a spectrum. There are many genetic and environmental factors that contribute to the risk for bipolar disorder. So it is certainly expressed differently in different people from mild to moderate forms. Some people in more severe forms of bipolar disorder will experience psychotic symptoms and will experience delusional beliefs. But probably that is in the the rarer end of the bipolar spectrum.
1: And men, women, young men, young women, is there much difference in gender?
0: No, no, interestingly, compared to other mood disorders where women are, it's much more common in women, the gender differences are much less marked in bipolar disorder.
1: And you are at increased risk of self-harm?
0: That is absolutely true. So bipolar disorder is one of those, one of the mental health disorders that carries a very high risk of self-harm and suicide and the rates of suicide in people with bipolar disorder sadly are very high, about 20%. So it is a, it is a disorder that carries a lot of risk, not only because it, it affects your mood. People have very low periods of mood. They also have periods where they can be very impulsive and where their mood can switch very rapidly but also it can be a very devastating illness if there are recurrent episodes and it can affect relationships. It can affect a whole lot of um, social kind of relationships and intimate relationships around you. So it can carry a lot of disability and a lot of um, burden to the person, to the sufferer and to their families. So
1: to what extent does treatment work? I know that Australia pioneered lithium for for this, um, but does treatment prevent... Self harm and correct the thinking and other ish and what you call the dysphoria involved with with bipolar disorder.
0: Yeah, so we have very good treatments for bipolar disorder. One of the difficult issues has really been identifying people at early stages of illness. It's characteristically been very hard to identify young people at the onset of these disorders. And they often, often present with a lot of self-harm or suicidal thinking as their mood can become unstable and dysregulated. So it can be very hard to identify bipolar disorder early enough to put effective treatments in place. When effective treatments are put in place, lithium is a very very good example, a very old treatment, but still a very good treatment for bipolar disorder. In addition to a lot of psychosocial, and there are, sorry, other mood stabilizers, but in addition, there are a lot of um, psychological treatments, behavioral treatments, stabilizing people's sleep and activity patterns, making sure they have good exercise regime, that they have good social support, and managing a lot of the psychological stresses and the interpersonal stresses that can trigger episodes of illness. So we do have good treatment, often sadly many people don't get treatment early enough or they don't get the right kind of treatment at the right time to really improve their course of illness.
1: Does bipolar disorder affect memory?
0: Um, Bipolar disorder, so certainly when people are in episodes of of the illness that can have an impact on concentration and memory, Many people with bipolar disorder recover in between episodes, and one of the characteristics of bipolar disorder is it's an episodic illness, in which case their memory and concentration return to normal or baseline levels. So certainly during episodes of illness, memory can be um, affected, but in between episodes, people often retain very good levels of cognitive function, memory, and concentration.
1: Now, uh, this woman was in her late 40s, and again, we're not litigating Mm -hmm. her story, but There is some research, particularly from the University of Melbourne and Jessarie Kulkarni there, about how women can enter a very vulnerable phase when they've got serious mental health issues, when they enter the perimenopausal period of their lives.
0: Yeah, so there are certainly a a subgroup of women who are probably more likely to be affected by hormonal changes and hormonal changes around their period or in the postnatal period, for instance, which is one of the times when people can develop their first onset of bipolar disorder. Similarly, in the perimenopausal age, as as your hormones start to decline, People can experience more severe episodes of depression, and that can be associated with a worsening of conditions like bipolar disorder. It's also a time when there's a lots of there's lots of change as well in a person's life in terms of relationships, employment, children, etc.
1: How does trauma play into this?
0: So trauma is a really important factor. I think it's a really neglected factor, Norman. It's one of the major risk factors for for across the spectrum of mental health. Illness, and it's one that we really have not dealt with in terms of its um, of its incidence and and trying to modify its course. So certainly trauma, and particularly emotional trauma and sexual assault, can increase the risk of bipolar disorder. It can increase the risk of people moving from a depressive illness into a bipolar illness, and it can worsen the course of illness and Promote poorer response to treatments and worsening treatment outcomes.
1: So, in other words, it's cause and effect. So it, it it increases the incidence rather than just, like maybe marijuana does to people who've got a susceptibility, brings it out. I mean, so it 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 can induce it rather than speed it up, for example.
0: So, so the evidence of is is still unclear as to that. But it's certainly been, if you look at um, studies which have examined the effects of um, sexual assault, emotional trauma, emotional physical trauma, and look at the incidence of bipolar disorder, you see increased rates of bipolar disorder in people who've been exposed to those kinds of experiences. And we understand a a bit or we're learning a lot about the neurobiology of disorders. So in which way we can understand those kind of causative links. So understand how traumatic experiences might affect brain development, particularly at key developmental stages, when your brain is engaged in really remodeling itself, that may increase your vulnerability to the onset of these disorders at critical brain periods.
1: So what you're creating is a similarity to the the discussion about Drugs in the adolescent brain. So the you know, the, the argument is that if you use drugs too early in your life, you reshape the remodeling brain. In other words, the adolescent brain is being pruned from an overgrowth in childhood, and that pruning can go wrong if you're t- if you're smoking dope or smoking or taking alcohol. And what you're saying is trauma can do the same thing. That's the theory.
0: That's right. That's the theory. And we know that trauma can create this increased physiological arousal, which is a stress response. So it's a stress response that that can affect the brain and affect the brain's long-term functioning if it occurs at particular stages in a vulnerable individual.
1: With or without PTSD, in other words, the full-blown uh, flashbacks, the, the you know the definition of post traumatic stress disorder.
0: Yeah. So again, the research in this area is not completely clear, but it would seem that it that the the requirement for PTSD is is uh, is not necessarily so. People can develop and be exposed to an increased risk without actually having developed PTSD. The the syndromes that we recognise associated with significant trauma
1: now let's talk about memory because mm. PTSD is being called a disorder of memory or a reinforced memory yet other mm. people uh, notoriously to some extent because of the repressed memory movement have said oh people repress the memory and they forget about the trauma what's this just can you disentangle that here what 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 role trauma plays on memory
0: right I mean you've asked it that's a that's a very long conversation for a very short period of time but I'll try to summarize it the the Trauma, particularly very significant trauma, um, that creates a very high physiological arousal. So the kind of things that you see in, in war veterans, for, for instance, or people who've been subjected to very severe um, sexual assault, for instance, or emotional trauma, turns on the alarm system in your brain. So it literally stimulates your brain, al- brain's alarm system, threat system, that tells you that something bad is happening. Now, when that happens in our brain, we turn off the brain's computer center, the executive system of the brain. If you think about it in terms of threat, you want to engage your fight and flight response system, your fight, flight, or freeze to try and resolve the stress as quickly as possible. So you don't want your brain thinking, I wonder what that is. Is that a predator? Is it going to eat me? I wonder if it's hungry. What you want is to turn that system off so that you can respond to the immediate threat. So in situations of trauma where the your either trapped or the trauma is repeated and, you, and your brain can't turn that system back on again. So, a sense your alarm system stays on, that can affect your memory because obviously those executive systems are the systems of our brain that allow us to lay down memory and process what's going on around us at the time.
1: But I thought so it reinforced the memory.
0: So so in other so in other in other parts of our brain that memory gets reinforced so we re- we remember with great clarity f- uh, episodes that have been very traumatic we can't necessarily access that memory we don't necessarily have the same type of autobiographical or narrative memory for those events that we have for what we have for breakfast this morning so our, bra- our brain stores those memories but we store them in kind of different brain areas and and uh, often those memories are triggered by situations which turn on that alarm system again so that's why people get triggered when they get triggered they get put in situations where the memories are triggered by a particular association or event then people get flashbacks and very intrusive memories that are very clear. And those memories are very consistent over time. They tend not to change, which is against this argument for repressed memories.
1: And just very briefly, because we're out of time, you're not a forensic psychiatrist, but the acceptability of uh, evidence from people with bipolar disorder or trauma in court?
0: I think, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned stigma because... If sexual assault or trauma is a risk factor for major mental health disorders, then clearly these are issues that need to be dealt with and need to be addressed. And there is no reason just because of mental ill health or unwellness to think that a person cannot remember an event, give coherent evidence, or that those issues cannot be identified within a court of law or within a litigation process with the benefit of expert testimony.
1: Liz, thank you. That's illuminating. You're welcome. Liz Scott is Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Notre Dame and the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. This is Iron's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. There appears to be growing concern amongst doctors that government bodies are trying to limit public discussion about COVID vaccines and cowing medical practitioners into silence with the concern they may be contravening sections of the Therapeutic Goods Act which proscribe advertising prescription medications. These doctors are also concerned they're being threatened with professional disciplinary proceedings by the National Medical Board under provisions covering endangering the public's health, amongst others. The doctors who've expressed concern say the warnings they've received are keeping them quiet while leaving the field open to non-qualified people who take a strong anti-vaccine position. And I should declare an interest here as I'm still a registered medical practitioner and in theory could be affected myself. Having said that, I've so far not been contacted by the authorities or warned off in any way, despite frequently making comparisons between vaccines using published evidence. Dr David Berger is an emergency doctor in rural Australia and has been a frequent social media commentator and advocate on the protection of healthcare workers from COVID infection, and more recently on the relative values of the available vaccines. Welcome to the Health Report, David.
2: Thank you very much, Norman.
1: So what has actually got you worried?
2: Well, we've had uh, statements by both the Therapeutic Goods Administration, which regulates uh, drugs and vaccines in this country, and also APRA, which is the body that regulates registered health practitioners, so doctors, nurses, physios, all of us. Uh, in the last week or so uh, to alert us to um, uh, aspects of their codes that w- that that people should be careful not to be breaking. So in the case of APRA, uh, they have alerted us specifically in relation to COVID-19 vaccination policy that registered health practitioners must make sure their social media activity does not contradict or counter public health campaigns or messaging uh, such as the COVID-19 vaccination policy. Um, and the Therapeutic Goods Administration issued a statement, I think about on the 3rd of March, uh, and, and has subsequently responded to questions um, such as, can I give my opinion about which vaccines the Australian government should be purchasing? Uh, and the answer is no, as this would be difficult to do without also inadvertently promoting a particular vaccine, which would be against the Therapeutic Goods Act and the Therapeutic Goods uh, Administration Advertising Code. Now...
1: um, Even though there's no choice of vaccine in Australia, I mean, the fact is you take what you get.
2: That's correct. But if you you are... uh, uh, In fact, you're not even... According to the Therapeutic Goods Administration, you're not even allowed to say... Uh, COVID vaccination is a good thing because that is promoting the use of a class of therapeutic goods. And that that kind of strikes one as as rather absurd. But you certainly cannot uh, promote, as it were, one vaccine over another by saying, for these reasons, I think this vaccine is better. So, for instance, saying that uh, Pfizer has better efficacy data and better... uh, activity against some of the worrying variants of concern the uk the brazilian the south african and therefore this would be a better vaccine for the vaccination program puts you in contravention of the therapeutics goods act and also particularly worrying for us doctors is it puts us in contravention of the apra code of conduct and we all as you know live in fear with a sort of sort of Damocles hanging over our heads should we uh, offend apra so although you haven't been censured and I haven't been censured we have both made quite clear public comment um, and the effect of this is I think for most medical practitioners and other registered practitioners is is to cause us to self-censor because but you know that that makes people really anxious
1: but the TGA and APRA say, well, this is not about your conversation with your patient. You're still allowed to advise your patient on the best evidence. It's about your social media activity. And some people might say, well, why are you on social media anyway? You're a doctor, aren't you? Why why don't you just get into the surgery and look after patients directly?
2: Sure. Well, that's all very fine as long as you believe that the government gets it right 100% of the time. If you don't believe that the government gets it right 100% of the time, then you want the most informed, educated, best-placed people to be able to deliver uh, a critique of the policy to inform it. Now, the problem that we have, I think now, I mean, I think it's important to say that these provisions of the Therapeutics Goods Act the, the provisions of the APRA code of conduct are not new, but this is the first time that we've seen either of these organizations see fit to inform us all to stay in line. Um, so- and that's actually rather sinister. And, and I, I would, I, I, you know, I, I'd just like to, to, to come back to the vaccination policy. You know, vaccination, who knew, is actually politics. And it turns out the medicine is, is turning into politics by other means. But there is a strong argument that the Australian government has failed uh, in its procurement policy in this greatest national crisis since World War Two, um, and that the country has ended up with a, a vaccination policy which many would argue is not the best for purpose, and that's extremely embarrassing. And now we see uh, that that uh, doctors are being suppressed. Uh, and others are being suppressed and and very clearly warned off uh, criticism. And it doesn't take a huge stretch to draw a parallel with Dr. Li Wenliang, who's the Chinese ophthalmologist, who was censured in January when he was trying to alert his medical colleagues in Wuhan to stop making false comments and and was investigated for spreading rumours. Well, I I don't don't think you're going
1: to be re-educated and sent off to a a camp.
2: you could argue that an an APRA investigation is is not uh, dissimilar, but yes. I mean, you know, we can lose our livelihood for this and be prosecuted and the the TGA provisions carry a 12-month prison sentence.
1: So is it shutting you up, David? Doesn't sound as if it is. It doesn't
2: shut me up and it doesn't shut you up, Norman, but it shuts many of our colleagues up. And I know quite a number who will no longer comment. Um, and I know quite a long number who've spent last weekend and last week deleting old tweets of theirs. So, so I, I think there is real fear out there. And and I, I've actually been sent by a couple of people, um, emails sent by their chief medical officers in their organisations, alerting them to this and warning them to stay off social media so i think you know there is a real strong move to suppress criticism legitimate criticism of uh of of the public health vaccination campaign i think anybody who's a believer in democracy should be worried about that
1: david thank you um thank you for that David Berger is an emergency doctor working in rural and remote Australia and on our website you'll find full responses from both the Therapeutic Goods Administration and the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Agency. In general, we love the idea of supplements and have done so probably for thousands of years. In ancient times, we thought we could acquire the powers of animals by consuming parts of them and some of those beliefs persist to this day. Testosterone supplementation has taken off around the world with soaring prescription rates in some countries. In men, testosterone has been promoted to increase muscular strength and sexual potency as well as more general health benefits. Recently, a West Australian group of researchers has looked at whether testosterone is worth adding to men's exercise programs. The group leader was Boo Yep, who's an endocrinologist at the Phony Stanley Hospital in Perth and professor of medicine at the University of Western Australia. Boo has been on the health report before talking about his work on the age effects of men's, on men's testosterone levels through following populations in Western Australia.
3: You're right. We've spent a lot of time showing that testosterone levels are lower as men grow older. And we've also spent a lot of time showing that when you are middle-aged or older, if you have a low testosterone, that seems to predict poorer health outcomes but we really needed to do interventional studies to see whether there's any scope for improving or preserving men's health using testosterone. And
1: mm-hmm. before we go on, and just to tell the audience, I think our last interview was that when you looked at the Buston study, you could find men who were, if I remember rightly, 75 or 80 years old, who had the testosterones of a 40-year-old man. And it more related to their fitness level and how healthy they were than anything inherent in their testosterone.
3: Yeah, we found that at any age group, there's a large range of testosterone levels. And you can sort of narrow that range when you adjust, say, for height and weight. But when you look at men as a group, then generally the older they are, the lower their testosterone will be.
1: So you were looking at testosterone and exercise?
3: Lauren Chaslin is the PhD student who drove the study. And the hypothesis was that we know that from our observational studies, men have a higher testosterone and they're more physically active, tend to do better. So this study, the hypothesis was that if we actually intervene and give men testosterone treatment with an exercise training program or testosterone alone or exercise only or neither, The hypothesis was that the men with the combination of testosterone and exercise would have the greatest improvement in the health of the arteries. And how are you measuring the health of the arteries? It's a measure of endothelial function. We put a blood pressure cuff across the brachial artery, release it and see how the artery actually responds to that.
1: The endothelium is the internal lining of the artery and the brachial artery is in the arm. It's in fact what you squeeze when you're measuring your blood pressure. Yes. And you see how well the arteries rebound.
3: Yeah, The amount of the artery changes in response, and the greater the change, the healthier the artery is. So what did you do in the study? We had 80 men, and we randomly allocated them into four groups. And one group had testosterone and an exercise training program. One had testosterone and were asked to do their usual activities. One had the placebo and had the exercise training program. And one had the placebo and one asked to do their usual activities. And it was double-blind, randomised. And it was cream, wasn't it? We used testosterone cream. And what did you find? Well, found that men who had the exercise training, their endothelial function improved quite substantially. But what we found was that testosterone didn't actually improve endothelial function And it didn't actually enhance the effect of exercise.
1: So in other words, the combination didn't do any better than just exercise Ah. alone. And testosterone alone didn't compensate for exercise. It didn't make any difference. Um, No.
3: So testosterone didn't, either on its own or in combination with exercise, didn't seem to have an impact on endothelial function. But this was a 12-week study. So it's possible that you know we may not have given the intervention for long enough, but that was the way we set up the study.
1: Sure, but exercise had an effect in 12 weeks. Yes. So if, if it does have an effect, it's not as potent as exercise.
3: Yeah, exercise gets you a good effect pretty quickly.
1: So with those caveats, then if you're going to take testosterone to improve your arteries, at least on the basis of this 12-week study, it's not worth taking. Have you found anything, you've been doing these sort of studies for a while now, have you found anything that mm-hmm. testosterone supplementation in a normal man, in other words, not a man who's got what's called hypogonadism, where who yeah. have got abnormally mm-hmm. low testosterone levels, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. found any good reason to give testosterone?
3: Well, you probably are aware of the results of the T4DM study. Testosterone for the prevention of diabetes mellitus. That came out in Lancet Diabetes Endocrinology in January, and that was Australia-wide randomised controlled trial. So this was um, to and, prevent
1: type two diabetes.
3: Yeah, um, that was a much larger study and a two-year intervention. If you get men who have impaired glucose tolerance or an or borderline type two diabetes give all of them a Weight Watchers program and then randomize the testosterone or placebo, at the end of two years, your risk of type 2 diabetes is 40% less in the testosterone arm.
1: And how do you explain that?
3: Well, what we did notice was the men in the testosterone arm were putting on a little bit of muscle and losing quite a bit of fat, and the men in the placebo arm were losing a bit of muscle and a bit of fat. So there was a definite change in body composition, and that may at least in part explain the result. But there's also other data suggesting that testosterone might have a direct influence on insulin resistance as well. But that was a two-year study. So there may be differences you know, depending on how long you apply the intervention for.
1: And there are worries about testosterone. One is that you increase the risk of prostate cancer and the other is you increase okay. the risk of heart disease. In that Mm two-year study, were there any signs of that?
3: No, the actual number of cardiovascular adverse events was pretty much the same in both groups and the number of diagnoses of prostate cancer were actually very low, but it was the same in both groups as well. Slightly more men were investigated for benign prostatic hyperplasia in the treatment arm but you know the numbers were really low.
1: That's uh, enlargement of the prostate. So as an Mm -hmm. endocrinologist who treats Mm -hmm. people with type 2 diabetes has that Mm -hmm. changed your practice?
3: Not yet because what we really need to know is whether testosterone as you've mentioned earlier is actually going to be good or neutral or bad for the heart. That's what we really need to know. So this is in part what our testosterone and exercise study was trying to get at. But what we really need to do is another large multi-center Australia-wide randomized controlled trial and specifically look at the effect of testosterone on the heart. And before we can start applying the T4DM findings, that's another piece of the jigsaw that we really need to have.
1: Which is ironic since the world's gone nuts with prescribing testosterone. I mean, there's been an enormous increase over the years.
3: I mean, in Australia, as you know, we wrote our Endocrine Society of Australia position statement, and we are trying to reinforce the message, as you've said earlier on, if you are a man and you have symptoms and signs of antigen deficiency because you have a pituitary or testicular problem and can't make enough testosterone, then you should be seeing your doctor and being evaluated for treatment because the treatment is going to reverse the symptoms and signs. But as you've said, for a lot of men who are middle-aged or older and their testosterone levels might be a little bit less than what they were when they were 30 years old, but if they don't have pituitary or testicular disease, then we are not recommending treatment for those men. Thanks, Boo. A pleasure.
1: Yap is Professor of Medicine at the University of Western Australia and an endocrinologist at the Fiona Stanley Hospital, also in Perth. I'm Rowan Swan. This has been The Health Report. Hope you can join me
0: next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.